It's my goal to cover the whole chapter today. And the chapter is of creation. Now, it might seem strange, the progression of the confession. There, I think there's 31 chapters. These are not, they're not meant to be seen as totally independent chapters. So like I could just jump in the middle of the confession and read a chapter and has nothing to do with the other chapters around it. There's meant to be a progression of thought, which is why we begin with what Scripture is. You have to start there, because if you can't trust Scripture, if you don't know what Scripture is, you're not going to know any of this. Then you go to who God is and how He's revealed Himself and His Word as the foundation for so many things that we're studying, including His decrees, which Caleb went over last week. And so the decrees are related to the next two chapters. The decrees are related to creation and providence. And this is, if you've ever studied the Westminster Confession, um, you've seen this directly stated. Question 14 of the Westminster Confession, or larger catechism, I should say, is how doth God execute His decrees? How does God bring about what He has decreed? There's two answers. And as you might guess, because of the context in which I'm bringing this up, it's creation and providence. God executeth His decrees in the works of creation and providence according to His infallible knowledge and the free and immutable counsel of His will. So how does He bring about what He's decreed before time? By creating and then maintaining that creation through His providence. This is how He executes what He has decreed. So... um, Let's just read the first paragraph. Chapter 4, paragraph 1. In the beginning it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. And should have given you the outline beforehand. Um, Sam Waldron outlines these paragraphs, with paragraph 1 being an overview of creation in general, paragraph 2 being the apex of creation, which is creation of man. Then paragraph 3, which is unique in our our confession, uh, the Westminster just kind of combines it with paragraph 2, so the same contents in both. But paragraph 3 is the fulcrum of creation, that which all of creation hinged on which was the obedience of Adam in the garden. So, with that being said, the overview of creation in the first paragraph. What is the first thing we notice about the Creator stated in this paragraph? The identity of the Creator, rather. Yes. Yes. We're immediately referring to Trinitarian creation. And this should bring our minds back to paragraph 2, where we emphasize so strongly our belief in the Trinity and the inseparable operations of the Trinity. When we consider Trinitarian creation, where do we see Trinitarian creation in Scripture? I mean, the confessors didn't make this up. Where do we see it? Yes. 
And I think you're getting at specifically verses 1 and 2 and 3. So if we look at the very beginning, Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And as we will see later revealed in Scripture, this is to be seen as the Trinity creating. We have the Father, we have the Spirit hovering above the waters, we have the Word by which all things were made. Where do we see this in Scripture, that especially the Word being who the Son is? John 1. And this is so explicit in John, right? Because how does John begin his Gospel? In the beginning. John wants you to think of Genesis 1 when he begins his Gospel. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And this is... I know the Jehovah's Witness go crazy over this, but you can, you can take a piece of paper, draw two circles, say, okay, in this circle is everything that's made, and in this circle there's everything that's not made. Which one does Jesus go in? Because they're going to want to put Him in the circle of things that are made. But in John 1, it says that um, all things were made through Him, the Word, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Without Christ, all the things that were made were made without, with Him, which means He has to precede all the made things. See in Colossians 1, more about Christ. Um, for, uh, Colossians 1, 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now again, this isn't like He was the first one who was born, but more has the rank and title of firstborn. The preeminent one, which is said explicitly later on in this paragraph. But in verse 16, for by Him all things were created. So He can't be the first one born, because by Him all things were created. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. We looked at a few weeks ago, Psalm 33. Very beautifully points this out. By the word, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth, all their host. And again, with the full revelation of Scripture... We understand this to be speaking of Trinitarian creation. By the word of His mouth, Jesus Christ. By the breath of His mouth, the Holy Spirit. So, with the confession, what do we, why does God create according to the confession? Chapter 4, paragraph 1. Yeah. For the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness. What we really want to emphasize here is that He does not create out of any need. 
in himself. And again, we're brought back to chapter 2. This is why the, everything's building on what came before it. Confessing a completely self-sufficient God, a God who lacks nothing and could not be given anything he doesn't have, means that when he creates, he's not creating because he needs something. And Bavink was helpful in pointing out there's two ways we can go wrong with this. One way is to think that, well, like we've been talking about, God's lonely, needs company, and creates so that he's not lonely anymore. There's something lacking in God. Now I've created to fulfill that need. But there's others that have gone wrong in a different way. And this is that God is so abundant, super abundant in all of his attributes and who he is, that creation just has to happen as a result of all of this superabundance. And if we're not careful with that kind of language, you again make creation a necessity for God. That He has to create. And what we want to affirm is that God freely creates. He didn't have to. There was nothing that was obliging Him to create. He freely chooses to. And with this... The most we can say is that he creates for his good pleasure. And obviously for his glory. But to say more than that, I think we get in trouble if we try to say more than that. To get to the end of the paragraph. Just real quickly, uh, to comment on the creation of all things visible and invisible, it is important just to know that the demonic powers, the angelic realm, all of this is a creation of God. This isn't a dualistic kind of thing where there are evil forces that are equal with God that exist outside of Him, that kind of thing. So it is important that we confess that. We, see that. we read that in Colossians 1. But the end of the paragraph. In the space of six days, and all very good. It's not my intention to spend a ton of time on this, just to point out some of what was said in my reading and researching. So, James Renahan, Richard Barcelos, Derek Thomas, R. Scott Clark, these are all men I, I respect greatly. I don't know where all of them personally stand, but there's a diversity of opinion as to what these words mean in the space of six days. Um, Derek Thomas and R. Scott Clark would want to uh, say that this language is more ambiguous than six sequential 24-hour days of creation and that the confession allows for that. James Renahan and Richard Barcelos argue that nobody would have thought anything really differently. And so when this confession was written, that's what they meant. And if you're going to think something different, you may be right, but you're not confessional. And that's okay if you're right. <laughs> but they would really assert that this is what the writers of the confession thought. And when they wrote these words... If you're going to claim to be in agreement with them, this is what you have to mean. And I'll just say for my part, 
I do believe that it was six sequential 24-hour days, normal days of creation. That's not something I am inclined to fight about, but that's, that's what I believe, and we can talk about that more if you want to. But it's here, and we want to comment on that. Finally, the last thing in this paragraph, it was all very good. What does very good mean is something to ponder on because I think we can say with uh, certainty it does not mean it was as good as it could be, that it couldn't possibly be any better. Because one of the big differences between the garden and, and the new heavens, new earth, in the garden there was potentiality for sin, Right? kind of was the whole problem. <laughs> that there was potential for sin. But in the new heavens and new earth, there will be no potential for sin. And so we know that very good does not mean as good as it possibly could be. So what does it mean? It means that, among other things, while there was potentiality for sin, there was not an inclination towards sin. That it was possible for man to obey God's commands prior to the fall, whereas after the fall, it's impossible for us to keep God's commands rightly without sin. We don't even have pure motivations, even when we do the right thing. And so prior to the fall, Adam was given commands and was able to obey them with a pure heart fully and completely. And the world was not tainted with sin as of yet, and in this way, was very good. Are there any comments or questions so far on paragraph one? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, absolutely, and has yet been, the, the image is not marred yet, whereas after the fall, we're still made in the image of God, but that image is marred now, it's not the same as it was in the garden. Any other comments or questions on the overview of creation? Paragraph 2 we're looking at the apex of creation. After God had made all other creatures, He created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, rendering them fit unto that life to, wit, to God for which they were created, being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. Now, I think it's helpful when we consider this paragraph, we see a list of attributes of the apex of creation. Uh, man, humanity. And the first thing that we should not so quickly brush over, because this is the one we most 
want to rebel against after God had made all other creatures. Meaning, we are also creatures. Meaning, the Lord is God and we are not. And all of our rebellion comes from a denial of this reality. That there is a creator-creature distinction. And that the Lord has rights to me by right of Him creating me. And so by the mere fact that I'm born, I owe God obedience. And again, this is building off of what came before. We saw this in chapter 2, paragraph 2 of the Confession. To Him, God, is due from angels and men whatsoever worship, service, or obedience as creatures they owe unto the Creator and whatever He is further pleased to require of them. And here we see this thread being picked up on again. said, man is creature. Which means by definition, you are not the Creator. and You owe allegiance to the Creator. Romans 11.36 is really great to have in the back of your mind for all this. The doxology of Paul. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Perfect summary statement of this. We are creatures. Next, we see that man is made male and female. And of course, this has a very different way of hitting our ears today than it did for the confessors. The confessors would have had no idea of the rebellion that would exist on this issue that we face. But, just to say a few words on it, we see the gender binary exists and was ordained by God. It is not a social construct. It is not a fabrication of our imagination. It is something designed by God and deserves our submission to it. The existence of what we call intersex individuals, people with genuinely ambiguous anatomy, does not deny this reality. It is not a threat to this reality. In a fallen world, Broken things happen. And for these people, they, they live very difficult lives and deserve our kindness, our patience towards them, our willingness to help them however they need help. But this is no justification for the rebellion we're seeing society-wide, worldwide, on the denial that God created them male and female. The circumstances of the creation of male and female also establishes the complementarity of the genders, which is, again, another way our culture is rebelling. It's so strong when you go to 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 13. Probably strong, it is stronger language than I would want to use, but this is Paul. <laughs> Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. You might pause there and say, why, Paul? Where do you get off saying this? What's your justification? Why would you say these things? Well, Paul is willing to tell us. For, here's your reason, Adam was formed first, <clears throat> then Eve. 
And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And so you see the the complementarity of the genders is established in creation. And it's not a result of the fall, as some egalitarians would like to argue. And so for them to get... uh, Egalitarianism is getting back to creation before the fall, is the logic. But we see here that Paul appeals to creation. The very way man, man and woman was created means that there are differences. Let's just pause there for a moment. Are there any comments or questions before we go on? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's so omnipresent that you can't get away from it. So... Man is made with reasonable and immortal souls. And here we want to affirm something very important. We are body and soul. We are both material and immaterial. We're not simply material beings. You are not only the product of the chemistry going on in your head. You're not a product of the chemistry going on in your body only. There is an immaterial part of you that is interconnected with the material. And it is interconnected. Like, I'm drinking coffee. This gives me a chemical effect that affects my physical body, which has an effect on how I'm feeling spiritually. If I'm tired, I'm more grumpy. I'm more prone to sin. (laughs) If we don't eat... We get grumpy because we have pain in our stomachs, which causes us to be more prone to sin. We're body and soul creatures, both material and immaterial. And this is the way God designed us. And we want to honor that and affirm that. Man is made fit unto life to God for which they were created. Which means, prior to the fall... When God gave them the commands, be fruitful, multiply, take dominion over the earth and subdue it. Do not eat of any tree of the garden, or eat, you can eat of everything, except for the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Adam was able to perfectly obey these commands, which we can't, we can't relate to. I can't relate to what it means to get commands from God that I'm able to perfectly obey without any uh, taint in even my motivations for obedience. But prior to, the gar- prior to the fall, this was what man was like. This is what we were created to be. That God gives us His law and we can perfectly obey it. We were made fit unto that. And because of the fall, we cease to be fit unto that. Ecclesiastes 7.29 says, See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. We see that man is made in the image of God. And this is an affirmation of the uniqueness of man contrary to any silliness that would want to ascribe to creation outside of man the same status as man. Saw a legal situation in which 
There were people, I think in Toledo, that wanted to grant Lake Erie personhood rights for environmentalist purposes. I, I guess, I don't know. But we see stuff like this all the time. There's this confusion as to what makes man unique or that we are unique. Uniquely made in the image of God, uniquely blessed by God. And the immediate context of this is that, especially when you look at Genesis 1, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So you see male and female are both in the image of God, which is important. Then it goes on, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And so there's many things we could say about the image of God, but I I think part of it is this uh, rulership aspect. That man was meant to subdue the earth in a unique way. We see in paragraph 2, having the law of God written in their hearts and the power to fulfill it. And this, we got to the fit aspect, but rather than ask the question because we're running low on time, I will share with you my understanding and you can come at me after if you want. (laughs) Um, What does it mean that the law of God was written on their hearts? I take this to mean the content of the Ten Commandments. The moral law of God written on their heart. I think it's pretty plain to see that the law of God written on their hearts is not the civil law of the geopolitical kingdom of Israel. It's not the ceremonial laws about what the priests should do to cleanse themselves and prepare themselves for all these sacrifices, it is the moral law of God. Which is why when you see Cain murder Abel, it's not like he did something that like, oops, I didn't know that a rock would kill my brother and that he wouldn't get up again and that this was a bad thing. Cain knew that he did wickedly when he killed his brother. Even without being told, the law of God's written on his heart. The Sabbath is established in the creation week. And we see people all over the world act this out unfaithfully, but it's written on their heart that there's a holy day to be honored and that there's a pattern of work and rest that's to be honored. We all know that it's wrong to lie. We all know that it's wrong to steal. We don't have to be told these things. It's written on our hearts. In the Marrow Modern Divinity, which is the book that uh, the whole Christ was riffing on, we get this. For the general substance of the duty, the law delivered on Mount Sinai and formerly engraven on man's heart was one and the same, so that at Mount Sinai the Lord delivered no new thing, only it came more gently to Adam before his fall, but after, this fall, after his fall came thunder with it. And so this, this is the view of a lot of people we would look to, the Puritans, the Reformers, that when it says the law of God is written on their heart, and I suppose I've gotten a little ahead of myself. The confessors are not making this up. Where do we see the law of God is written on their hearts? I'll give you a hint. It's not in Genesis. (laughs) At least the language is not in Genesis. 
Romans, yeah, Romans 2. So, uh, Romans 2, 12 through 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus." And what I'm really drawing on is that pointing to Gentiles. Gentiles never had the law of God written down and codified for them. He's pointing to Gentiles who have the law of God written on their hearts. When would this have happened? Well, the only place it could have happened was in the garden. From creation. The law of God written on the hearts of men. I've got to keep pressing on if we're going to finish. So, paragraph three. This is the one that our confession separates out into its own paragraph, but the Westminster has this. It's just tacked on to the end of paragraph two. So, besides the law written in their hearts, they received the command not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and while they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. And so, See a few things. The law of God is something other than the command to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. That was a special command for those people at that time. The law of God is something else, and I would suggest the Ten Commandments written on their hearts. But this is the fulcrum of creation, according to Waldron. And what is meant by that is all of creation hinges on this command. Will Adam and Eve obey to not eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And if they do, then they will live in this state of a very good world. They will subdue the earth. And I don't necessarily have time to prove all of this, but I'm just going to share what we believe. So, again, if you want more, talk to me. But had they subdued the earth without eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and completed that task, I believe they would have entered eschatological rest as prefigured by God's rest on day seven. God worked for six days, rested on the seventh before there was any sin in the world, before the curse of the drudgery of work was in effect. Why? Hebrews 4 suggests that Sabbath was always about pointing to eschatological rest. Joshua couldn't give them that rest. That's why they continued to rest in looking forward to that day when they would be given a full rest. And if we apply this definition to the garden's rest, God is teaching, Adam, you work, and then you will rest. You be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, and then you will enter rest. So, any comments or questions? <laughs> I don't know how much further to go with the little bit of time we have left. Yeah. Right. 
Right. Well, that's what Romans 1 says. That creation attests that there is a God, and we all know it. And we all rebel. But it requires special revelation to show us how we can be made right. You mean the third paragraph? So the content of it is in the Westminster. It's just, um, the Westminster only has two paragraphs here. Three is just part of two. Um, For whatever reason, the Baptists wanted to separate this out to emphasize it. And I think the only reason that... I, I, I like Waldron's outline, Overview of Creation, Apex of Creation, Fulcrum of Creation... Beyond that, I don't know why I could tell you that it's here except to set to lay down. The confession in the early chapters is laying down all kinds of foundations that will be picked up upon later. And this is going to be one of them, as you stated. Later chapters are going to take this thread and continue to pull on it later on. So this is seen as something foundational that can be said at the beginning. Anything else? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the faithful men that have taken the time to summarize the content of Your Word. Pray that You would help us in studying the confession, not merely to know the confession better, although I do think that's a good thing, but that we would know Your Word better and know You better and love You more because of it. Lord, we praise You in Jesus' name. Amen.